Welcome to Historically Thinking, a program devoted to all kinds of historical knowledge and to the ways that we achieve it. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Our website is historicallythinking.org, where you can subscribe, find more information about our guests, links, and related readings. Our email address is mail at historicallythinking.org. We'd love to hear from you. My guest today is Russ Roberts. He's an economist, the John and Jean Denault Research Fellow at the Hoover Institution, and author of numerous books, the most recent of which is Gambling with Other People's Money, How Perverse Incentives Cause the Financial Crisis. And that's the subject of our conversation today. I would be very remiss if I did not also add that Russ is the host of the award-winning weekly podcast, Econ Talk, which he began in 2006 sometime in the Jurassic, as far as podcast goes. So this is a little like the CEO of Walmart doing a meet and greet at a trendy boutique down the street, which no one ever bothers to visit. Uh, Russ, thank you for joining us on Historically Thinking. Happy to be with you and uh, appreciate the comic metaphor uh, or analogy. Which <laughs> well, yeah, whatever it is. Um, we're not we're not English. Uh, we're not literary people. So um it's uh, a couple of weeks ago. I was uh, had been talking about. I think on the on the podcast, Alan Bullock, who uh, in 1953 did something extraordinary. Uh, he wrote a history of the Hitler regime, 53-54. And uh, what was extraordinary was that he was a historian, and he was writing about someone who had killed himself eight nine years before. Uh, and all of a sudden, contemporary history became a thing. Um, and when you think about it, it was very transgressive to do that. Um, uh, yet, as uh, one person has said about um, Alan Bullock and Bill Deacon and A.J.P. Taylor and even Hugh Trevor Roper, these guys were trying to figure out what the hell had just happened to them. Right. Um, and yet, of course, to write the history of one's own time is a very fraught um, undertaking. Now, as I take it, when I read through, uh, this is a reissue of a sort of a pamphlet that you had written in 2010. An extended essay. Yeah, extended essay. Um, And it's definitely, you are trying to get to grips with what the hell has just happened, right? Yep. Um, So if you were going to talk now to a, God help us, a freshman this year who wasn't really cognizant of what was happening in 2008, what would be your sort of very... Brief, what would be a brief narrative of 2008 for them? Then we'll get to the interpretations. Yeah, so that's a, that's not easy by itself. I mean, you may sound like, oh, let's just do the, the easy thing. No, exactly. what, what happened? And, yeah, exactly. And, you know, I use the metaphor a lot of the blind man and the elephant. You know, mm-hmm. somebody's holding onto the elephant's leg and somebody else is holding onto the side of the elephant. Somebody has the tail, somebody's got the trunk, and, and somebody has the ear. So the person with the ear says it's like, oh, an elephant's like a giant palm leaf. And the one holding the trunk says, no, it's like a hose. So, you know, there's so many facets to what went wrong in 2008. I'll list a few of them, and then I'll try to give you what I think is one way to think about Mm -hmm. the Twitter version of what happened. So, No, please not. (laughs) You you know what I meant. I meant short. I just meant short. Not not snarky. Don't worry. (laughs) So the, the complexity of it is, is that a whole bunch of things happened at once. We had a crisis in certain parts of the financial sector that spilled over into other parts uh, because of interconnection. So the crisis started in the uh, investment bank part, what's sometimes called the shadow banking system with uh, firms like Bear Stearns and Lehman Brothers 
Uh, and then it spilled over into some money market funds, which re raised a lot of anxiety in Washington and elsewhere, in New York and elsewhere. And at the same time, the housing market was going through a uh, collapse of prices, which in turn was the underlying or proximate cause of the troubles in the financial sector. And then that whole thing rippled through the whole economy. So that's sort of the elephant. And then you got monetary policy. You got the Fed doing some stuff in there that I think we still struggle to figure out how important or unimportant it was. But that was all going on at the same time. Mm -hmm. And people differ already about whether it was a housing problem or if just a financial problem or was it a monetary theory problem. But what we do know is that all those things were not doing well. They're all doing badly. But I think the easiest way to think about what went wrong at approximate level, and then we'll talk about the deeper mm -hmm. underlying cause, but the approximate level is that a lot of people had borrowed money to finance the purchases of assets. Now, that sounds complicated and fancy, but we do that when we buy a house, right? When I buy a house, I don't pay cash. I don't have hundreds of thousands of dollars laying around. I borrow it. And when I borrow that money, typically and historically, to borrow enough money to buy a house, you have to put 20% down, a fifth of the price of the house. So let's just take an easy example. A $500,000 house, you would put $100,000 down, and then you would borrow 400000 The bank would be willing to do that for a whole bunch of reasons. It would have to be assured that I'm capable of paying the money back, of course. But one of the things that's going to worry about is the ch potential change in the price of the house. And the reason is, is that their collateral, their backstop on my activity, my loan, is that they can always take my house mm -hmm. and then sell it. And so that's their insurance policy. That's their collateral. But suppose that instead of borrowing 400000 I borrowed 500000 no money down. So now the bank has an asset that's worth $500,000, and I owe the full value of that asset. Well, that's okay as long as I keep making my payments. But let's suppose I lose my job, and I'm going to miss a couple payments now, maybe a, maybe a lot of payments. And at the same time, let's suppose the value of the house isn't $500,000 anymore. It goes down. So the most that the bank can sell it for is $400,000. Well, now we have a problem because for starters – I don't really like making payments on an asset that costs me 500000 that's only worth 400000 I have a legal commitment, but it's not so exciting anymore to keep making my payment. Mm -hmm. And the second thing is the bank is extremely uneasy that the collateral that they hold against my keeping my promise is not as much as they uh, are hoping to collect from me. So the, the technical term – it's not a very technical term, but the technical term is that my house is underwater. Mm -hmm. The – value of my house is less than what I owe the bank. So that's a disaster. Okay, So that would be a disaster in housing. But let's say it's happening elsewhere in the economy because a lot of people have used houses uh, in various combinations and sold them as assets to other banks and so on. Mm -hmm. So by the way, if I keep making my payments and my house is worth 400000 I'm a good citizen and I keep my promises – the bank's okay with that because the price may eventually go back up to where it was. And even if it doesn't, the bank doesn't care. They're going to get their money back. But let's suppose all throughout the economy, a lot of people have borrowed money with to finance purchases with almost no money down. 
the, the technical term for that is leverage. Mm -hmm. so, so you're highly leveraged when you use borrowed money to pay for your purchases of, of, of anything. So what happened in 2008 literally, when I say it's the proximate cause, a whole bunch of people throughout the economy from home buyers to financial institutions like Bear Stearns and Lehman Brothers, they used a lot of leverage. They bought uh, a lot of assets with borrowed money rather than their own money or rather than equity, uh, an investment. So when I want to when I want to buy some buy an asset, I can I can either uh, borrow the money or I can use my own money. That's the money. That's like the down payment. Or I can sell stock if you're a bank, not, not me as a homeowner, but you can sell stock. The thing about stock is if you hold equity in something, you get the upside. And that's fantastic. Mm -hmm. You also have the downside, zero. Uh, and usually there's a risk of that, right? With a, what's called fixed income, assets that are loans, there's not much upside. It's whatever you agree to, 3%, 5%, whatever the terms of the loan are. The downside, though, is that if you go bankrupt, you don't get the money back, the person who lent the money. Okay. So here's what happened in 2008. A whole bunch of places lent money. And a whole bunch of other people borrowed money to finance stuff and didn't have much equity, didn't have much of a down payment, which meant when the asset price fell, like the underlying asset in many cases was the price of a house, mm -hmm. people started getting nervous. What if I don't get my money back? I think I'd like it now. Yeah. And when a lot of people do that, you have the equivalent of what's called a run on the bank, and there's anxiety and a loss of confidence. And that's what happened throughout Wall Street in, in 2008. So that's the proximate cause. That's not the real cause, though, because the real question is, why would I lend somebody 100% of the purchase price of an asset if it could go down mm -hmm. and I could lose the value of my collateral? Just one – before we move into that, one, yeah. one point you've already made and sort of a, a meta point from the historian's point of view is that um, we often assume that just give me the – just tell me what happened. Yeah. You know, right. Uh, yeah, just give me the short narrative, and then your interpretation later. That's yeah, the, no, you, but of course, putting the story together is an act of interpretation. The, it's half the story. It's half the story. More. So I just, want, story. I just want to emphasize that because I'm. Yeah, go ahead. So I'm going to tell you why the elephant's legs are really fat. Yeah. And you're going to say, but what about? Is doesn't it also have like a giant trunk? By the way, I always hate that analogy because that yeah. that supposes that there's someone that sees it's a damn elephant. Yeah, that too. The, That's fact, the fact is that we're just – we don't know what we've Fair got. Enough. We've got something that we're groping. We don't have that could God's be a griffin. Could, could be a griffin. griffin. Could or be a, a unicorn. Yeah, yep. it's true. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I just want to know what it really is. Well, that's part of the challenge. We yeah, can figure it exactly. out. But anyway, uh, the point is, is that uh, the real fundamental reason – the fundamental reason that, that so many banks collapsed or were at risk of collapsing is that the things that they had bought – were with borrowed money, which meant that the people who had lent the money were getting nervous. But it raises the question, as I said, how, mm. why would you lend money to something that where you have all the risk? Yeah, why would you? Yeah, why would you? So one answer – there's two answers. So this kind of gets to the causal underlying explanation. One answer is, well, you know, people got excited and, they, and housing prices don't fall that often and they were making so much money and they were lending money to so many people who really had no chance of, of paying it back, but it didn't matter because as long as the 
price of housing kept rising, it doesn't matter if I can't pay it back because I, I can always sell it and, and, and pay back the bank that way because it's always getting more valuable. So a lot of one argument for what happened is, is that banks, bankers and banks got overconfident, lent out money to people who were not as capable of paying it back, lent out money to lent money to on assets that were actually quite risky that they thought were safe, and they just blundered. They, they a lot of people call I call this the the perfect storm explanation. Just a whole bunch of the confluence of a whole bunch of unlikely events. Overconfidence on the part of banks, overzealousness on the part of borrowers who think I can make a killing by buying a second house with no money down, right. monetary policy that made it that accommodated it, uh, blindness about the possibility that prices could go down. Then when prices did go down, all of a sudden there was this domino effect of people trying to grab what they could, and then all of a sudden there was a run on banks. Mm -hmm. So that's the, that's one of the explanations, and that's a, an explanation based on. Um, you know, flawed human nature, uh, overconfidence, and you can add in. There's all kinds of pieces to that you can add in. Uh, they were told it was safe because a government rating, uh, not a government, a, a rating agency, had called it safe. Um, pr housing prices hadn't fallen dramatically in X years, so people forgot about it. Uh, and then there are other little metaphors that that people use, which I love. You know. Uh, uh, you know what? When the music's playing, you got to dance. So you know, if you're a an investment firm and an investment bank on Wall Street, and um, everybody's making fifteen percent, twelve percent, maybe more, because they've used so much leverage, so much borrowed money. If you're prudent, you look like an idiot. Mm -hmm. you, every, nobody wants to invest in you. you. You've got lousy returns. Of course, it turned out those other guys went broke, and you lost all your money. So. You know, hey, maybe you should have been more prudent. But if, in the heyday of it, when the music's playing, you got to dance. Mm -hmm. You don't think about that is the claim. And so that's this one explanation that a lot of people uh, are drawn to. And then they they layer on some other things onto that, like um, government regulation got lax and allowed people to take riskier chances than they normally did. And so those are the th that's what I would call the anti-capitalism story that capitalism is inherently unstable every once in a while animal spirits run amok greed runs amok love that word amok and and then the next thing you know you got a bunch of shattered plans shattered fortunes shattered portfolios this is the big short interpretation of it the... ripples through the economy and then yeah well i haven't seen the big short but yeah yeah, yeah. um but anyway, that's the and I'm read the book. But that's the that's a standard answer, mm -hmm. and I found that answer um, deeply disquieting for for a number of reasons. Uh, one of which is, well, usually people don't like to lose all their money, and they're careful. So, is there anything that happened that made them less careful? Mm -hmm. So, when you say, well, the government was less involved in regulation, yeah, I understand that, but it, taking high risk is yeah, really, why would you need regulations against that? Like, why would I need to have a uh, a government regulator keep me from taking high risks? Like, you know, it's like saying um, uh, there's a giant cliff here and it's a thousand feet high, and if you go over it, you're going to die. Mm -hmm. So we better we better have people who don't. Um, we're gonna. Everybody knows the cliff's there. It's not a secret. 
people have gone off the cliff before, but now we need a government regulator to say, don't get near the cliff. Well, don't people kind of have a natural – we understand that a few crazy people might or, – or people who are confused mm-hmm. or who struggle with reality might get near the cliff, and you might want to keep them away. But why is it that almost everyone's trying to go over the cliff, and the only thing that would stop them would be this some kind of regulation? Mm-hmm. So that, that doesn't – it's not a satisfying answer. It doesn't mean it's not true. It could be true that that the loss of government restraints in in, in some deregulation uh, combined with the human desire to make lots of money just kind of got out of control, which does happen It's sometimes in, in financial history. Uh, it is worth mentioning, of course, that when people say, yeah, they, get, they deregulated the financial sector, there's tons of regulations on the financial sector all the time, and it's kind of a just-so story and a narrative that's convenient. But there's a piece of this that's that has some truth to it. Mm-hmm. It's not my explanation in the book, mm-hmm. but it's it's part of this. It could be part of the story. So what? And so what is your explanation? So my explanation is that starting around 1984, uh, when a bank called Continental Illinois had this exact same phenomenon where they mm-hmm. had been lucky enough to borrow money from lots of people and then lose it because the assets they used uh, with that money weren't very good. Uh, the government said, hey, we can't let you go bankrupt. That would be terrible. That could have bad effects on the economy, and everybody got all their money back. Well, once the lenders get all their money back, you see, the, not getting your money back is the thing that makes people who lend money cautious, mm-hmm. right? I'd never lend you – remember, lending you money is, a, is, is kind of depressing because the most I can get is three or four, whatever it is, the interest rate we agree on. Unlike a stock, a stock I could, could quadruple or go up tenfold. But if I'm going to use my money as a loan. I, you know, I kind of want. There's not much upside. Okay, that's 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 the bad news. What's the good news? The good news is you get all your money back unless they go bankrupt. Mm-hmm. Well, then I'm going to be really careful to make sure I don't lend money to anybody who has much of a chance of going bankrupt. But once you tell people, uh, well, even if they do go bankrupt, you get all your money back. When you lend a lot more money, so mm-hmm. that's the simple idea of my book, which is to try to find evidence. That people acted this way, believed this, thought this was true through their behavior, not just what they said. There's, I don't know if you say this explicitly, but certainly reading through this, there's the idea that people, regardless of ideology, have come to believe that a market economy is a profit. It's, uh, it's all it's, it's all about profit. It's about profit, yeah. and there's no loss. Yeah, it's a, Milton Friedman used to say this: it's a profit and loss system. Yeah. And the way I describe it, I don't know if I got this from him or not, but profits encourage risk taking. And that's great because you need an incentive to take risk because that leads to all kinds of good things happening. People innovate and they can buy houses and all kinds of good things that enrich our lives, make our lives better. So profits encourage risk taking. Losses encourage prudence, Mm -hmm. which is that, okay, sure, you'll take a risk, but don't take too big a risk. The potential that you might lose all your money is going to uh, focus your mind. Mm-hmm. So once you take that away, and you only have a profit system. He has like the you have the worst of socialism. It's just it's horrifying. You basically allow uh, people to live off other people's money. Now here's the horror of it. The horror of it is the homeowner who borrowed with no money down uh, financed the assets that the bank sold in, to each other with borrowed money. And bought with borrowed money. And then ultimately, there was one person in the chain who had to finally actually pay it off. 
And it wasn't the homeowner. The homeowner said, oh, I don't have any money. And then the bank said, oh, no, I can't pay my loan back because I didn't get the income from the homeowner. Oh, that's okay. The government will give it to you, which means I and you and I and our friends, we ended up being involved in those trades against our knowledge and will. We were at risk. And that's just a terrible thing for democracy, for capitalism. It's a disastrous system. But that's essentially what we did in, in 2008. We basically, My claim my mm-hmm. claim is that in the run-up to 2008, in the 25 years between 1984, roughly 25 years between 1984 and 2008, what was happening is that periodically when people got in trouble, the government said, oh, that's okay. You can have a do-over. And the people that were getting in trouble were large American financial institutions. Yeah, my favorite example of this is the 1995 crisis in Mexico. Mm-hmm. Mexico is, the government of Mexico borrows a ton of money. Then they can't – all of a sudden they realize, uh-oh, we can't pay it back. Oh, that's okay. We'll borrow it to pay off the loan. And they did that for a while, but eventually people said, you know, I'm not so sure you're going to pay it back, so I'm not going to lend it to you. So th- for some reason, the United States government – it's crazy – the United States government guaranteed Mexico's next round of borrowing so they could borrow the money to pay off the loans they nor- they were unable to, to pay back. Why, why would we do that? Well, because we could get into geopolitical a, stability. We, yeah, that, exactly. Yeah. But I think what it really was is that it was the Wall Street banks that had lent that money to Mexico and for well, political reasons – The government didn't want them to lose their money because they were important contributors to political campaigns. So we have Alan Greenspan, who is thought to be this big free market guy. Alan Greenspan testifies in front of Congress in 1995. Oh, you know, it's a terrible thing to bail out Mexico, but it's the best choice. We don't really have an alternative. Really? We don't? How about letting them lose all their money so that banks of the future will think maybe I shouldn't lend money to a a country that is not – Maybe so stable. But we kept doing that multiple times. And that my claim is, is that sent a signal to banks that if they lent money to risky projects, they'd still get their money back. And so they lent it to riskier project riskier projects. And that's my claim. And you and you further claim, and this is kind of the most disturbing part, um, is that nothing really has changed. No, not really, right? So there were all kinds of different ways we could have coped with the financial crisis. Um, the people who took the risks lost some money, but not so much. That, that, that's the tricky part. So when I tell my story, the story, people say, well, uh, Jimmy Kane, who was the CEO of Bear Stearns, who took a lot of these risks we're talking about, you know, you're telling me he didn't lose any money, that he got bailed out, but his stock in Bear Stearns was worth $1.5 billion. And after this collapse, it was only worth $500 million. So he lost a billion dollars. Shouldn't that have incentivized him to be more careful? And the answer is you'd think it would, except for one thing. He still had $500 million. He didn't plan to lose a billion. He was hoping he'd keep that too. Mm-hmm. But his downside was really pretty pleasant, $500 million. So all these players, they had a good day. Yeah. And the reason they had a good day is for all the years leading up to the crisis, they were able to lend money. And borrow money at very reasonable rates and make a lot of money along the way. And then when the collapse came, yeah, they lost some of their stock money, but they still survived and with with a huge amount of of, of asset of assets to their portfolio. And so it's just a um, 
you know, I, the way I say it is we bailed out the, some of the richest people in the history of humanity. Mm-hmm. Like you could have bailed out homeowners. We could have given money to homeowners to allow them to make their payments, which means the bank's assets then wouldn't have lost so much value and the run on the banks would have been staunched and slowed. But instead, we, be- we bailed out the banks and we didn't fire <laughs> the people at the top. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm not sure they should have gone to jail. A lot of people think they, oh, they were all crooks. I, most of them I don't think were crooks. They were just playing the game that they had set up. You know, People say, yeah, they were just trying to make money. Well, they're making money using the rules of the game that they had lobbied for. These bailouts in the past, they had been advocates for. So, of course, <laughs> it was great for them. Mm-hmm. And that's just not good for capitalism or democracy, right? To have incredibly rich people with political power get special goodies. It's a, you can understand why Occupy Wall Street was mad. The Tea Party was mad. Yeah. And then that all died down. I mean, one of the most incredible uh, black marks against American democracy, the American political system, is that the first presidential campaign after this collapse and crisis is 2012, right? Mm-hmm. In 2012, we have uh, Barack Obama, who's a, a progressive, left-leaning Democrat, running against a super wealthy, uh, born with a silver spoon in his mouth, Republican Mitt Romney, who's a who's a used to work for a large uh, uh, financial institution consulting firm called mm-hmm. called Bain. So here you'd think Obama would say, "Well, my base hates Wall Street, and so I'm going to campaign against Wall Street. I'm going to campaign against these bailouts. I'm going to say we need to put some rules in place to keep this from happening again." And Mitt Romney, who's painted as this super rich, out-of-touch guy, he had this incredible opportunity to pick on Wall Street and show that he's actually a normal guy. He was one of us. He's a man of the people. And yet neither of those things happened. Neither of those candidates talked at all about the financial crisis. Mm-hmm. And it was kind of like, yeah, we got that out of the way. Let's leave it alone. Well, I mean, I don't think it I, – I think that um... – Sanders and Trump are an expl- are a result of that myself. Absolutely. I mean, we're Absolutely. still living with this. Absolutely. Yeah. What my wife refers to as the the uh, majority party of the middle finger. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, I, I say it a little more. Regardless, it- <laughs> regardless of ideology, it's that they yeah. all they all share that in common. Yeah, I have a different version. I was not quite as colorful. I say, yeah. uh, Republicans and Democrats both like to give money to their friends. They just have different friends. Yeah. So the Republicans give it to the, the military. The the uh, Democrats give it to the teachers unions and to uh, welfare payments. And I said, but they have one friend in common, and that's Wall Street. Mm-hmm. Neither one of them is going to hurt that friend because a lot of their campaign contributions come from there. Well, I, I'm going back to the, the moment of the financial crisis. Um, you, you've talked a lot about this on um, – on your Walmart size podcast, um, <laughs> how did your opinions change because of it? I mean, were you shaken in them? Uh, because oh, absolutely! Of it? Oh you no, were. it was a it was a it was a uh, watershed event for me but, in I mean, many ways. Some people are not going to be pleased with that because you haven't become a socialist yet. Correct, uh, but but nonetheless, despite remaining a. Uh, uh, how would you describe yourself? I, I forget I'm a class. I, I call myself a classical liberal, meaning uh, a liberal of the 19th, 18th and 19th centuries, okay. when you, you, people you, believed in smaller government and individual responsibility. Uh, so I'd like government to. I'm not an anarchist. I'd mm-hmm. like government to be active in the uh, in 
the courts, police, protecting our, our, our country from invasion. Uh, but after that, I think we should pretty much be left on alone to take care of our problems. So you haven't sacrificed that uh, philosophy, no. ideology. At the no. same time, at the same time, you were shaken in a lot of. Yeah, absolutely. What, what, what things were you shaken in? Well, first of all, I realized I had a lot of ignorance. I, mm -hmm. I had not that story I told at the beginning of our conversation. I had no idea about those things. I didn't know anything about leverage, uh, the financial sector. That was a different thing. That's business. That's finance. That's, I'm an economist. I don't I don't worry about that. That's about it's not investing. It's not my thing. Uh -huh. And I think a lot of economists fail to recognize the connection between the financial sector and the macro economy. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, that's changed somewhat. You know, I think there's a little more awareness of that of that phenomenon. Uh, so that was one thing was I became deeply aware of my ignorance. Uh, I had no idea how the housing market worked. Um, I sort of assumed it was kind of a free market. I didn't realize we had these institutions, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, that did more than just lend money and make it easier to finance a house. I think that's what most people think. But it turns out in the uh, in the 90s especially, uh, both Republicans and Democrats used housing policy as a way to curry favor with uh, with with various voting blocks. And uh, I didn't realize how much intervention there was there. So that was very valuable for me just in terms of learning. Mm -hmm. But but of course, when it happened, uh, similarly, by the way, to the to the uh, the outsourcing uh, excitement of the um, of the late 90s, early 2000s, where a lot of people thought, oh, my gosh, free trade's awful. All these we're losing all these jobs. They're all going to China and Mexico and blah, blah, blah. And you sort of think, whoa, whoa, maybe, maybe there's more to this than I, than I thought. Certainly, I did have many moments in the beginning part of the financial crisis where I thought, this thing is more of a house of cards than I recognize. I mean, it's it's much more unstable. So part of what my book is, is an attempt to comfort myself mm -hmm. with the possibility that actually it wasn't inherently part of capitalism. But I think as an honest person, I have to concede the possibility, as I do in the introduction to the book now, not so much of the text. The text was written in 2010. I'm, I've become more uh, epistemologically humble, which is a fancy word for saying I don't know. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm a little less confident and arrogant about my viewpoint. So even though I tell a story that says that government guarantees caused the crisis, I'm very aware of the fact that you know sometimes things just run amok without anybody causing it. It just Animal spirits do run wild sometimes. People do get overconfident. So I, I'm a little embarrassed, and I say so in the introduction, that you know, when I wrote that book, which I didn't change except for a couple of tiny, small errors that needed correcting, uh, you know, I was very, very confident that I'd found the truth. I, I don't feel that way anymore. I, I'm more open to the possibility that, that there are other explanations. But what I'm proud of, and I think it's important, is that my the story I did tell – it's remarkably unknown. <laughs> you know, most people think of it, the crisis is this, uh, you know, there's sort of two views of it. One is, oh, it's all the government's fault. They made people buy houses they couldn't afford through mm -hmm. housing policy. That's silly. That's not the problem. Mm -hmm. The second view is, oh, it's all capitalism's fault. People just, you know, get nuts and try to rate, make extra money and they're greedy. And that can't be the whole story either. So, you know, I, I, even though, uh, my book is what I would call a prosecutor's brief. It's a one-sided story, I, I do, and I do occasionally in the book talk about why you know this is uncertain and we don't know. And but it is trying to understand 
how much, how far you can push this this explanation. And you know, I leave it to the reader to decide: is this is this help you think about it? Helps me think about it. It's definitely part of it. And I added it in the introduction. I think something I learned that's powerful from uh, Nassim Taleb about the role of skin in the game. One way to think about the crisis is that we stripped out the skin in the game because we promised the potential bailouts that we talked about, basically told investors they don't have skin in the game anymore. And of course, you don't have skin in the game. You act less carefully. But Taleb's insight, which is quite uh, unusual and, and, and not obvious to most people, is that you know even if you don't take account of the skin in the game that you, that you don't have anymore, if you lose all your money and you don't get a do-over, you're out of the game. Whereas what we've done in Wall Street is keep saying, yeah, come on back in. You know, you, you, you kept drawing to an inside straight. That's okay. I'll stake you again. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Here you go, says Uncle Sam. And, and that I think is really useful to understand that that's to, we want to stop that. It's mm-hmm. a bad thing. Yeah. So we need to find, I think, a way to deal with financial crises that don't just reward the people who got us into them. That's a bad model. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You've been um, speaking of epistemological humility. Um, you've been mentioning on the podcast uh, tribalism a lot lately, uh, yep. ha- having conversations with people about tribalism. And you've uh, you had a very unusual – I mean you usually have a, a conversation with one other person and that's the format of the podcast. And then you broke formats and you had a monologue. I, I did yep. uh, to, you know, to camera, to microphone. Um, and discussing the, your, I guess the essay, the outrage epidemic that you yep. had, you had written. It's on medium.com and we'll put a link to that in the show notes. Um, one of the things that's clear about this, this tribal moment, this moment of outrage, and I'm with you on both is that people, people now have permission not to change their mind. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, uh, there is no need to change one's mind anymore, don't you? I yeah, mean, that's that's what we that's we've got a free pass on that. Yeah, that's an interesting way to think about it. I, the version. The way I think about that piece of it is, uh, look, it's a religion. Yeah, you know, religions are not. I'm a religious person. I'm, my listeners know I'm a religious Jew. The essence of religion is nothing. It's not about data and and evidence. Although I think there's evidence for some aspects of religious life. Uh, that's It's not that it's blind faith, uh, but it's certainly not proven. <laughs> so so uh, religious life is about faith. And when you have faith, um, it's really easy to explain away things that don't agree with your uh, viewpoint. That's kind of what religious means, right? In its negative connotation, it means uh, I can explain that away. Uh, no, it's my religion. Don't you understand? Mm-hmm. Uh, and And by definition, almost religions, again, as I say, are not really uh, proof-based. They're not science. Different mode, different thing, whole different thing. Uh, again, it doesn't mean they're irrational, but you don't use the same methods for deciding what's true and not true. So, if you start extending that to areas beyond what we normally call religion, mm-hmm. politics, uh, sports, uh, you name it, uh, it's not so good for democracy. So, if my view like you said, if I don't have to change my mind, if I don't have to take account of the facts, on, if I'm on the left or the right, and it doesn't matter what you tell me, I'll just dismiss it. Well, you've lost the ability to learn anything for starters. And secondly, it means you're living a religion, not a, an ideology. And of course, that's a human problem. That's our tribal nature. We like to group ourselves into us and them. 
and us or the people who know what's right and have all the good studies that prove all the things that we believe in and them. They're the ones with the sloppy, shoddy studies. Their numbers are wrong or lies. And if that's your view of the world, you're going to be very content and you're dangerous. So yeah. it's really okay. I, you know, it's, you, it's harmless you, <laughs> until except, you vote, until yeah. you vote, and then or go into the streets. You know, when it really turns ugly, it's you get fascism or communism. You, you get an intolerance and a willingness to use violence against people you quote know are wrong and evil. That's a really bad path to go down for a country. Yeah, I, it, a lot of people die. Yeah, you you just recently uh, we're we're recording this on uh, January sixteenth, and your most recent conversation with with um, Stephen Kotkin about yeah. Alexander Solzhenitsyn, um, an example of that a couple weeks ago, I had one of the most interesting conversations I've ever recorded for this uh, podcast about the Chinese dissident uh, Lin Zhao, uh, who it's a book, um, Blood Letters, about her. Um, gradual decision to revolt against Mao's Communist Party. And uh, one of the extraordinary things about her story is the, um, I mean, she was, uh, put a, people have already heard this listening to the podcast, but she was caught out by the 100 Flowers campaign. And uh, friends of hers who then took Mao's invitation to criticize the party and to have a different way of thought did so and then were targeted because they had done so, it was all they identified themselves. They, they identified they, themselves. They stuck their head above the parapet, and then exactly. the sniper could get them. Yeah, it's the the line. It's I think it's in Herodotus, or maybe it's uh, Xenophon's Life of Cyrus. You know, the tall heads of wheat got knocked off. Yeah, uh, and they're standing up in the field. Um, and she was uh, drawn into that, and then uh, imprisoned. It's um, the truly her, uh, hermeneutic ideology cannot have humility it cannot yeah. have intellectual humility um, yeah. that is the root of all weakness and what i uh, see in in academia uh, and in now in everyday life is that to admit to having doubts just encourages the bad people yeah you know, then they, what, what? it gives them it gives it's giving them aid and comfort it's tr it's intellectual treason to have intellectual humility yeah, no, it's dangerous. I mean, I, when I write about my doubts and I admit that I'm biased, mm -hmm. uh, my intellectual and ideological opponents jump down my throat and say, "Oh, see, he's a hack. He's got, he's got, he's biased." Yeah, meaning not like me, the truth seeker. <laughs> and, and and so when you confess to that, you make yourself vulnerable to that attack. Or if you say that, and I don't want to name names, but you know, there are certain people you're not allowed to say anything good about because obviously that shows you're on the wrong team you know there's this this idea of intersectionality which i find mm -hmm. uh deeply disturbing that you have to have the right view on all these issues you can't just be with us on this one you got to have all these issues and that but that's true of, of the people that you respect or say nice things about there are certain people there there's an enormous class that's persona non grata mm -hmm. that you know you can't even say well i, I didn't like you know what he said about this, but on this other area, you know, he's pretty. I learned a lot from him. No, can't say that. And I mean, that is in in many ways, um, it's really quite extraordinary. Uh, it was as if we didn't live through the 1990s, uh, where we were told that we were all biased. And you know, my my idea of postmodernism, rightly understood, was to understand bias. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, and uh, yet it's as if that never happened. I, I know that I, I was in grad school for that, uh, but it was it, it seems like a very far 
very far away. Um, yeah. Can I just respond yeah, to that? Yeah, yeah. I, I think it's a deep um, insight that it's hard to remember, which is I, when I had the privilege of interviewing Milton Friedman for Econ Talk, I we talked about the fact that even though gasoline prices were quite high uh, at the time, this is 2006, or had been high recently, that there'd been no calls for price controls. And I thought, you know, this is a tri I said this to him. I said, this is a triumph of, of economic education. We've we've encouraged people to understand how damaging price controls could be. He said, no, nah, I don't think that's it. He said, I think it's that there's still a lot of people alive who were alive in the 1970s when we had them. And when they die off, there's going to be a new demand for them again. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so, you know, people's memories and, and willingness to invoke history is, as you know, is so short. And well, it's not it's 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 not comfortable. I don't want to hear about that. We no, tried people, this already. People want to invoke history like I'm I just uh, just dealing with this now. I just have a new book out about a revolutionary era figure and what people want to say. Well, what would what would Daniel Morgan? What would George Washington think of? I don't know. Gas prices. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and what they want to know is. Does their opinion conform to my own? Because what we're really interested in is being validated. Then I can yeah, then I validated. can trust you yeah. and, and, and raise you up on my shoulders mm -hmm. with the other people in my crowd and say, yes, he's wonderful. Right. Oh, and but I, if you're I, one of the bad guys, I, I can't do that. Yeah. You know? And we, people do it in all sorts of different ways. Yeah. Um, so you have a, a podcast which is devoted to conversation. Um, is conversation a way of enforcing your intellectual humility? What do you mean by that? Well, I, I'm just – there's a – I think I, I, I sent this quote to you from – it's the German Catholic uh, theologian. Oh, philosopher, yeah, Pieper. Jo Joseph Pieper, yeah. Like, the natural habitat of truth is human conversation, which is a beautiful idea. Um, it, it's something to think about and treasure. I'm not sure it's true. Right. But that's it, a beautiful idea. It's a I beautiful idea. idea. And there's, there's some sense in which that a genuine conversation between two people and um, – is the best attempt that people have at getting at some sort of intellectual humility of working out one's mistakes, um, you know, trying out ideas, trying on ideas, mm -hmm. uh, taking them off, um, yeah. and 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 struggling. Is that why you? Is that did you? Because because you have conversations, you don't do interviews. Yeah, That's something thank I've you. tried. Something I've tried to learn <laughs> from you. Is not to do. I, I've I've come to really detest podcasts, which are interviews rather than yep. conversations. Where you have a list of questions, and when they give the answer, you go on to the next question. E and, exactly. Yeah. But that's an interview, and I and I, as you said, I try to have a conversation. I try to tell my guests that we're having a conversation, which is a little bit challenging because it is, yeah. they like to be the star of the show, and I try to make them the star of the show. But a conversation, by definition, means we're doing this together. And wait a minute, well, but it's my book, says the says the guest. <laughs> yeah, and, then, and, and so and they know more than you and then about right, this topic because they wrote the book. Which is true. Which is which true. Is true. They, they wrote the book, um, literally. And, so yep. but at the same time, uh, we are rational thinking beings and you're an economist talking to people about economic things. And I'm using principles of historical thinking to follow along with what they're doing. So, you know, let's have a conversation. And, and I'd say even for me, what I've learned – one of the things I've learned from being the host is that it's an often not – it's not that I know more than they do about their topic. I don't. Mm -hmm. It's not that I'm a better economist than they are. I'm often not. It, it's that I have heard or read something that they haven't, and by bringing that in, we can 
see how that interacts with their ideas and see something we didn't see before. Mm-hmm. And that to me is, you know, I, I tell people that that's the ideal econ talk episode where uh, the guest and I see something we hadn't seen before. And, and then I assume that means the listener <laughs> sees something they didn't see before. Um, but I do think conversation is challenging because uh, I use an, often use the metaphor of a dance. Mm-hmm. And a good conversation is like a good dance. Uh, a bad conversation is I take the floor and then you take the floor. Yeah. You know, it's kind of the difference between a jazz, you know, a great jazz ensemble. You know, it's a classic in Dixieland jazz. In Dixieland jazz, if you go to, to New Orleans, you go to Preservation Hall or, or any other place, what you'll hear is everybody plays the melody together. Then each person gets to play it by themselves. And if that was the end of it, it wouldn't be interesting. But what's beautiful is then they all come back again and they play it together differently than they played it the first time. That's like a conversation. And so that's the ideal. The problem is is that mo- many of our conversations, particularly political conversations, we're not having one of those. We're having an explore we're having a great exploratory dance. But in, in, in too many political conversations, it's I wish that person would stop talking so I could make my speech. Mm-hmm. And that's a human impulse. It happens in marriages, right? It's not okay. just a political problem. It's like, my turn, my turn, my I, turn. I mean, I don't know how economists do conferences now, but that's exactly how we do panels, right? <laughs> yeah, We've sure. got one person gives a speech. They're the convener. And yeah. then someone, and then there's five speeches, and then there's a response, <laughs> and then there's three minutes for questions. You know, it's, it's and and the response, by the way, is often written beforehand. Of even if you hadn't seen the other, no. you, it's just another chance for you to get your points made. Exactly so, on this topic. So, so I think the art of conversation, which which you know I try to model as well as I can, and, and obviously it's hard. But I think the art of conversation is is it's not just the habitat for truth. That that that's incredibly a bold claim. I, I do think though it's an incredibly human experience when it's a real conversation. And I do think, I like to think, I have no evidence for this, but I like to think it's how we learn Mm -hmm. because it's all we had for who knows how many thousands of years was that I talked and you talked and we tried to figure stuff out. And most of the time we had no idea what we're doing. So narrative and back and forth narrative, which is what conversation is, Mm -hmm. is the human experience of, 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 of learning. And so for me, a lot of what a great conversation is, is trying to, we're trying to figure stuff out. We're groping, we're, we're, we're improvising, mm-hmm. not, oh, I got my speech. When's this person going to stop talking so I can make it again? And, you know, it's hard to do. It's hard to do well. It's hard to do well in daily life. Forget a podcast. It's hard to do well, as I said, <laughs> you know, with your spouse. But that's the, that's the gold standard and that's the potential for the habitat uh, where truth can reside. Yeah. And, 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 but that's a beautiful quote. I'm going to, I'm going to remember that. Well, it, it, one thing I, I'm curious, how you, you, I've heard you say on the, on the podcast that you've gotten better at not interrupting, which I have tried to avoid doing. I think it's a Mediterranean disease, both Jews and Italians. We, we might just share this yeah. habit. I'm sure the Greeks, I've seen it. I'm sure the Greeks do it too. <laughs> uh, um, what other thing, what else have you gotten better at? I mean, what, what uh, in, in the art of having conversation, or it's not an art, it's a craft. We can yeah, get, it's a we craft. Can get be, we can get better at it. 
So I, I interrupted you there yeah, um, I know. a right. second ago because I wanted to say that, you know, I saw somebody recently sent me a study that showed that the Jews have the mode of interrupting as their sort of frantic uh, interaction. And it is a Mediterranean thing. My, yeah. When, when my wife met my family that first breakfast or dinner, <laughs> she uh, she was a little high. We're, and we're northern Italians. I mean, we, they, we could have been Sicilians. I mean, then it would have been. But she was a little stunned. She still. Where's she from? Uh, she's nice German Irish girl from Ohio. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, so. I'll give you an example of this uh, cultural clash: economists and social workers. A group of social workers asked me once to teach them some economics, which I thought was really sweet. And I, we made a deal. Um, they were grad students, and I was uh, at a think tank on campus at WashU, Wash University. And I said, "Larry, I'll make a deal. I'll t teach you economics." And as long well, – let's do it for three or four weeks. And if we both think it's rewarding, we'll, we, we'll commit to a different length after that. But let's make a minimum commitment, and I'm not going to give you a grade, and you're not going to pay me. And let's just see if we value the interchange that takes place. And it was fabulous. They, they were leftists. They wanted a market-oriented economics education for me because they recognized they weren't getting it from their teachers. And that was really sweet, right? Not surprising, but really sweet. And I thought, this is cool. Intellectual, actual, genuine intellectual curiosity. And I'm not going to give them a grade or, or do anything. You know, It's not like an independent study because I just want them to be purely motivated by I want to learn something I didn't otherwise know. Mm -hmm. And so that was really a glorious experience. I've learned many things from that. But culturally, what was fun is that they didn't interrupt because they were social workers. And I'm an economist, and I'm Jewish, and I'm, <laughs> I talk too fast. And so if they ever interrupted, they would be incredibly apologetic. Oh, oh I'm so sorry. You, you, go ahead. And, and they would just sit there peacefully. And I thought, what's wrong with them? They're not even engaged. But <laughs> it's just a different cultural mode. And in social work, it's mandatory. I, I yeah. totally get it. Yeah. But it was a fascinating thing for me. They're Apparent passivity, conversationally, took a lot of getting used to. I would kind of try to provoke them, like wake up, mm -hmm. in interject something. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, but you asked me what I got, but yeah, yeah. I didn't answer. Your well, question, no, it's so. all right. I well, let me just give you. Let me embarrass you. You had a couple of years ago. You had a journalist on who was talking about the um, initiative led by Jeffrey Sachs. Yeah, Nina Monk was Nina that Monk, person, right? And. She wrote a book. She wrote a book. And I think the next week, I think that that podcast must have dropped and you immediately within maybe seconds, minutes, I'm not, don't you have to say, got a phone call from New York City and Jeffrey Sachs was the next week. Um, that was, seems to have been, you don't have to out, but that, that was, I really admired that because you let him talk. Um, he was, he obviously, to use an old, fat, an 18th century way, he felt his honor had been affronted. Uh, to, in an 18th century way, um, and he wished to defend his honor, and um, and you let him do that, and let the listener then. It wasn't so much of a conversation, but in a way, you facilitate a conversation between Nina Monk and Jeffrey Sachs, who I'm sure <laughs> they want actually meet. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, they but had. They had. Not anymore. Not, yeah. No, no. I think that was. That, I think that relationship was over. Yeah. Um, but they, but they had a conversation. In, in a way. They had That's two cool. bookends. Yeah. Yeah. So that was a great experience for me because uh, Sachs didn't just want to defend his honor. He wanted to take his sword out and bloody me uh, mm -hmm. at the same time, which I was not – I was sort of prepared for. I didn't – you can go – listeners can go find that episode. It's, we'll link to it in the show it's notes. A, it, it's a character builder. 
uh, for me. It was, was because it? absolutely because he uh, he expressed tremendous outrage at how I treated him in that previous episode. I wasn't prepared for that. I was prepared for him to defend his project and and I and I recommend listening to the Nina Monk one first. Mm-hmm. It's a uh, it's one of my favorites, by the way. But as is my one with Sachs, because he beats me up pretty badly, and I wasn't prepared for it, and I, it was very hard for me to keep my cool. A lot of people think I'm a calm person. They see me in person, like at a, give a talk, and they go, "Who is that person? That's not the host of Econ Talk." Because you were all excited, and and I have I have a hat I wear on Econ Talk, and that's my Econ Talk hat. And when I'm wearing that hat, I try to stay calm, which is not easy for me. And I've gotten. I hope yes, we would have gotten better out of this. I think I've gotten a little better at that. Uh, there have been you know a handful of times in the course of the program where people said remarkably cruel and dismissive things about me, and uh, in my youth, I would have you know reared up and mm-hmm. and tried to savage them back, and I kind of just take it. Um, or certainly edited you would certainly have edited them out. No, I've edited almost nothing out of those things. I mean, never actually that yeah. I could think of. I, I just thought, you know, it, it literally it's a character building thing for me. I I don't want to yell back. Mm-hmm. When people get worked up, I try to work myself down. I try to calm down and and let them go and observe it. And uh, that doesn't come naturally to me at all. And so that's been a, a really wonderful side benefit of being the host. But I, I think the reason I do that is is even more interesting. It, I could lie and say, well, I just think that's the right way to be. And I do think it's the right way to be, but that's not why I do it. I think the reason I do it is I think, you know, if people are going to be guests on my show who don't agree with me and I yell at them, they're not going to come on anymore. So it's a self-interested thing that's pushed me to do something that I think is also happens to be the moral and right thing, which is to not always respond in kind to insults and, and people dismissing you. So it's fascinating for me. Well, it's, it also gets back to sort of where we were beginning this sort of segment, talking about intellectual humility and conversation. Uh, if you want to keep talking to people with different ideas from you, you have to put up with some. Cra- you have to put up with some crap once in a while. Yeah, and you've also got to treat them respectfully and, and yeah. kindly, and and it doesn't mean you're a sucker no. or a, a punching bag. You know, you can defend yourself. Yeah, you know, we had an interesting conversation. I forget who it was with. Um, I forget how this came up on some episode where I basically said, outside of personal danger, there's really no reason to get angry. If you're in personal danger, anger is very helpful because it gets your adrenaline going and it, it could save your life. But you know, if it's just a discussion about politics, when I was younger, I used to get angry all the time and yell and rant. And I, I think I rationalized it by saying, well, that way they think I really believe it or I really feel it intently, mm-hmm. intensely. But it causes everybody else to go like, what's wrong with him? Why is he yelling? And it's just not nice. And and so I, I think the ability to calm your anger is a huge human trait that we're not very good at. It's taken me a long time to get a little better at it. But I think it's definitely worth worth working on. But a lot of people don't agree with me, but you know, because righteous anger is is considered a great virtue by many people. And I think it's a mistake. Well, everyone wants to pretend that their anger is righteous. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's a great that's a great point yeah Uh, the possibility that it's not righteous doesn't come we we wouldn't be saying it was righteous anger if we felt comfortable (laughs) with all of anger (laughs) it's true well it's the it's the Feynman quote uh the first principle is you 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 must not fool yourself and you are the easiest person to fool and this is true my guest today has been russ roberts he is 
author of the new edition of Gambling with Other People's Money, How Perverse Incentives Cause the Financial Crisis, and he is host of Econ Talk, and I will not tell you how many more downloads he gets per episode than Historically Thinking. Russ, thanks for uh, c- coming down to the corner store. Great, great spending time with you. Really enjoyed it. For more historical thinking, go to our Facebook page, where you can comment on today's program and suggest ideas for programs to come. Please subscribe to us on Apple iTunes. And if you like what you've heard, please, please leave a review so that others can find us. Our program's editor is John Runat. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Talk to you next week. 